But uh, we're going to be jumping into the book of Romans. So if you don't have already, grab a Bible. We do have a few Bibles that are like on this, in these little rows here, if you want to grab one of those. Um, we've been, we're in Romans chapter 5. We're only going through five verses today. So Romans 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Uh, it's a slower pace, so we get to actually really uh, pull these apart in some different ways. Um, I am very excited uh, to be with you guys this morning teaching. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of stalling at this point for you to get to Romans 5. I think you've gotten it good enough. So here we go. Uh, turn with me to Romans 5, and we're going to read the first five verses here. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Today, if you've been with us, if you're new, welcome, but if you've been here for a few weeks, you know that we're on chapter five of Romans, and the first four chapters have been mentally daunting. That Paul is kind of writing, you know, this is not elementary level information. He's been writing college level thesis of here's how we can explain what God has done. And we have that very first word here of chapter five where he says, therefore, meaning based on everything I just told you. So I'm going to catch you up. If you're new, I'm going to catch you up to where we've been these last six weeks as we've been scaling this kind of like mental mountain. And the good news also is if you're a feeler, right? Some of us are more rational. Some of us are more feeler. I'm a feeler. Um, this week is for you. Welcome to Romans. We get to feel something today. Um, and so uh, Paul starts in Romans that Matt's been using this illustration of Rembrandt, the Dutch painter. So if you're a Dutch fan, I apologize, my condolences to you for the World Cup. Um, heck of a game. But uh, the Dutch painter Rembrandt, he would, before he paints these amazing canvases full of this picture after picture of scenes from the Bible, he would paint the entire canvas black. And then he begins to, from a black canvas, not a white canvas, he paints this, these beautiful pictures of what God is doing in these different stories. And he starts Romans by telling us all, here's the universal truth. You all have something in common with every person in the world. God's wrath is towards you. I'm like, oh, that's awful news. He's like, yeah, some of you are moral, but guess what? Not moral enough. Some of you are outright, you know, reckless in your lifestyles. Like, well, yeah. God's wrath is the one thing that is universally communicated to this world. It's evident. The heavens declare he has wrath towards you. Awful news. Canvas is black. And he goes through to explain that even with the law, even with morality, even with all these different things that we can do, he's like, no, everyone is without excuse. But that's not the end of the story. He said, in the same way everyone has an experience of the wrath of God towards them, all of us can be brought in through what Jesus has done. And he says that we have a just God who would rightfully convict you and I from what we have done. He said, but that same God is not just just, 
He is also a justifier. And so we see God's amazing plan of coming to earth, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God comes into earth, lives the life that we could not live, and when he dies, it's good for us because now his death was taking that punishment in our place. And so he says that it is by faith, right? Abraham was saved by his faith. Well, guess what? You and I, were saved by our faith, meaning we just trust that Jesus is who he said that he is. And through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, you and I can now have what God would give us, life. The relationship with God, it is given to us. That's very good news. And so his therefore is hanging on all of that, that Jesus was the sacrifice for you. And so that is some very good news. But now he's going to engage our hearts. He's engaged our minds, and he's like, well, guess what? I I have something for you. And look at these first two verses. I'm going to reread them again. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what are we going to get from this justification. Paul's telling us, good news. Our life has changed. Our very relationship with God is changed because of Jesus. And the first thing he mentions here, it's kind of a past, present, and a future. He gives three things. The past when he says, we have peace with God through Jesus. See, you and I, when that bad news, the Rembrandt black of all creation, is that you were once an enemy of God. Now, you might be like, I've never declared war on God. I was just doing my own thing. I'm doing my own thing. I'm fine. I don't, I'm not that bad. But I'm going to offer you an illustration. The war in Ukraine. I don't know if you know this, but Russia never declared war in Ukraine. Do you guys know that? They just merely decided that that belongs to them again. And so all their military things are considered military exercises because you can't have war with yourself. Ha, ha, ha. Meanwhile, Ukraine's like, oh, no, we are at war with Russia. And so what happens is if two different people claim ownership of the same object, there is hostility. There is going to be radical different sides. And here's the reality of you and I. We are, we're American enough that we think we are independent, we are autonomous. You don't have to be an American. We're all, all the world is condemned because we think, I belong to me. And God says, I made you. You belong to me. And so there is a fundamental hostility. We are an enemy of God, both claiming ownership of ourselves. And so this hostility, even if you might not think that you are at war with God, you are at war. (laughs) And through Jesus, we now can have peace. Now, he's not talking about the peace of God that we can experience. We'll go to that later. This is just peace with God. So that means through Jesus, you and I, we don't have to wonder, is the wrath of, is God out to get me? Is he, is he, am I going through this because he's just trying to punish me? No. The punishment was placed on Jesus. You are good with God because of Jesus. You're good. He's not trying to get you. Well, he is, he's trying to bring you close, but he's not trying to punish you. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just peace with God. He says that we now have obtained access by faith. We have this access now through Jesus. It's this idea of nearness, this now relationship we have. 
with God himself. It only comes by having someone who could get through that hostility. If you take notes, if you have one of those Bible um, journals, or if you just want to write in your Bible, you can write in your Bible, by the way. I don't know if you know that. I recommend it. Mine is massively marked up. And so go for it. Right next to that, Hebrews 4.16, because it's almost the exact same passage, just written by a different author. It says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's this illustration of what happened to you probably yesterday morning if you're a parent. That your kids, all too early in the morning, burst into your bedroom at like 6.30 saying, guess what, it's Saturday, and you're like, sleep in, please, please. They only sleep in on Mondays, right? I've learned this. Um, but he's saying, because we now have access, Jesus has given us access, and we can burst into the presence of God knowing that we're not going to receive wrath and condemnation, we're going to receive mercy, grace, right? We, we stand in grace, going back to Romans chapter 5. We have that kind of access. It reminds me of this story of, um, I think this is a real story, I don't know, but bear with me. Uh, it's in the Civil War, so I was not alive, I was not around for this. That um, there was a Union soldier who desperately needed to see President Lincoln for whatever reason. The president is also the commander-in-chief of the army, so I'm assuming he needed something to do in the army, and only the president could get him. And naturally, if you and I just want to go see the president, you can't just show up to 1600 you know, Pennsylvania and say, hey, I want to see the president. They're like, eh. <laughs> do you have an appointment? No, of course not. You don't even have the phone number to get an appointment, right? There's all these layers, and this soldier could not see the president because only the president can give him what he needed. And so he's got the secretaries, he's got the, you know, security, he's got all these layers of protection, and this soldier desperately wishes he could get to the person who has the authority to do what he needs. And so he's, you know, dejected, he's sitting there, you know, in, in some park, and he's just, ah, man, what am I going to do? And there's a small boy next to him playing, I don't know what they played in the Civil War, like jacks or something like that, what do you, I don't know. Well, he's kicking a ball, they have balls back then. Um, and he looks at the soldier like, what, what's wrong? The soldier's like, well, i got to see the president. And the boy's like, oh, well, follow me. The boy, come on, come on, come on, runs through. And he just goes straight past the security, straight past you know, all, the secretary, all this stuff. And he just opens up the Oval Office and is like, hey, Dad, <laughs> this man needs to see you. It's like, oh, yeah, the son doesn't need to go through the pomp and circumstance to get an appointment. He gets access. And so Jesus is the son who brings us into the presence of God. But Bible actually goes way beyond that and says, now he has transformed you and I. Now we're adopted sons and daughters of God. Isn't that amazing? In fact, a lot of the a picture of our mission is that we're that son who now carries our friends and our neighbors and our, our family members into God's presence. Come with me. I have access to God. It's amazing. And so we have this beautiful access, and we have a relationship because of what Jesus has done. But then he's going to go into the future here. It's not just right now. He says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That word hope, I wish we had a different word for hope than what we use. Because when the Bible talks of hope, it is so different than when I say hope. Because when I say hope, we tend to think of wishing, right? 
I wish the 49ers can figure out their quarterback situation by the time the playoffs come around, but they're not. Respect. Um, we just can't keep our ligaments in our legs and knees and, yeah. Um, we wish we would have, you know, a relationship would be solved or fixed, or I wish, wish, wish. And most of the time we say the word hope is this kind of, uh, maybe, all right? Ryan wishes you would sign up for Christmas Eve services. <laughs> Probably not going to happen, but please do, all right? <laughs> The, Bible, the, the biblical word for hope is this certainty. There's no wish involved, but it's an anticipation. It's a future thing, but we know without a shadow of doubt it's going to happen. We just don't know when, and we don't really have a word for that. So we use the word hope, and then you and I, we walk around you know, the Oaks Mall, and we see hope everywhere, and we're like, oh, this must be what, you know, the Bible talks about hope. It's, like, it's nothing to do with that. The hope is in the glory of God, right? All of a sudden, the hope isn't in me. The hope is actually in God because most of my little hopes are about things I can do or that would happen to me. This hope is that you and I and the world would someday see Jesus on full display for who he really is. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Revelation chapter 4. But the author, John, he, he has this vision, and he starts to see what's happening in heaven. And he sees Jesus on a throne, and you see all these, like, you know, lamps on fire. There's a beautiful barbecue. I know Ahmad's going to love it. Um, there's all these things that are going on. Then there's people who are shouting worship songs, and there's these, this picture of rainbows and thunder and lightning and crazy beasts, and they're all just shouting, holy, holy. And it's like the beauty and the power and the awe. That's actually what our hope is, that one day people will see Jesus for who he really is. That's the hope. That means my heart has changed so much, I'm not just hoping in my stuff. I'm hoping in his stuff. Does that make sense? Our best equivalent is like what we experience with family, right? Some of my biggest joys and hopes are seeing things for my kids. When they get the you know, grades just went home for CVUSD, and it's like, How'd you do? Oh, I love it. You had a great day at school. That becomes my joy. It's, it's like that. And our hope is that Jesus would be recognized for who he is. Because now that this relationship has changed, that's our, that's our future as well. That when he rises and when he is glorified, we also rise and we also are glorified. Right? We're, we're riding his coattails, but we get to be there. And so our hope is not just in these things that we have in front of us. So Jesus changes my relationship with God. But this next section, which is kind of the meat of what we're going to talk about today, it's, it's going to talk about something that we need to know, but that we probably would wish was different. And I use the word wish there intentionally. Is that Jesus is going to change my experience of suffering. Do you guys see that in verse 3? He said, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Really? Like, why? <laughs> I rejoice when there's a lot of cake. <laughs> <laughs> rejoice in our sufferings? A few things. 
I, I don't have the time to do a full biblical like, explanation of what sufferings are. I will say this. He's not saying rejoice because you are suffering. Right? We're not, we're not masochists. Don't go find new ways to suffer. It'll find you, by the way, if you haven't, if you haven't lived long enough. Suffering has this amazing ability to find where you live. Um, but if you're going through a, a situation and you can change it, by all means, change it. I think sometimes we've Christianized suffering to such a degree that we think it's better to be suffering when you cannot suffer. And for some people, they endure things that I don't think God's calling them to endure. Um, it's, it, that's not what it's talking about here. If you can change something or if something is wrong, like, by all means, you, you can change it. But what I will say is it doesn't matter what you are suffering for. God is going to do something, and our relationship with Jesus has made it so you can have a different experience right in the middle of that suffering. To the point where you could even rejoice in the middle of being persecuted or suffering or whatever that cause is. And so this new experience of suffering, we do learn a few things. He gives a few reasons for that. The first reason here is that we see like our suffering is used to grow us. God uses suffering to grow us. If you stay in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, I'm going to sneak ahead. In Romans 8.28, it says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That we see that throughout the scriptures, they talk about that God is so amazingly powerful and he is amazingly wise that it doesn't matter how bad or how heinous or how dark a moment or a thing is. He can bring about good from the absolute worst atrocity you can think of. And it's not making light of the atrocities or how heinous the evils can be, but God can even bring good from the absolute worst moments. The best example of this is Good Friday. Like, we call it Good Friday, and it's the day we crucified and murdered Jesus. And it's like, oh, what should we call that day? Good Friday. Because so much good has come from Jesus' sacrifice that any other word would just pale. Good is kind of a soft word, too. It should be like Great Friday or something, but Good Friday. God has redeemed it so much. In fact, like, what else would we call it? But it is our Good Friday. His experience was very bad. But my experience of that day is freedom and life because of what he chose for us. God, he won't waste your suffering he will redeem it in some way. I don't know how. But one of those that we see right here in these verses is that he will use it to grow you. And we see he has these three different steps he talks about. This isn't the only things he grows in us through suffering, but these are the ones that he mentions here. He says that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We're going to kind of walk through these three things, but you can... As we're talking about this, you can think of like, well, where are you in this right now? What is God growing in you? I think sometimes we could, it's helpful to know what God is doing. Many times we don't know, but sometimes you can see, oh, he's growing in me character. All right, it's helpful. But the first one he talks about is endurance. Now, it might surprise you, but I'm not much of a runner. Um, uh, but I know people who run, and I have the internet. And so uh, when people who run describe running, um, they... A lot of it is, well, any athletic thing, and I do you know, play sports, but 
you have this moment where you are pushing through, it's difficult, it's difficult, then eventually you get into that zone where you choose to stop paying attention to your body and you are just in the moment and you're just running left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. It's this endurance. And in fact, the word endurance means single-mindedness. It's that idea of like, I'm locked in, I'm just going. And it doesn't matter if it's at that point five miles or 10 miles, I'm just locked in. And I'm not paying attention to my feet and my ankles and my knees. I'm going. That's what he's growing in us. That there is an endurance that I can deal with hard things. God will get me through this. And I can see through it. One good promise of suffering is that our suffering will have an end date. We don't know when that is. Sometimes it's on the other side of the grave for us. But our suffering will end at some point. But God builds this endurance that, you know what? When the world is moving and shaking, I can endure this. When my family is going through it, when my bank account, when my finances, when we still aren't pregnant at this point, God's growing an endurance in me that I can go through hard things. In fact, Jesus went through hard things. He, he, knows, what, he knows what I'm going through. And that endurance doesn't stop there. Eventually, it becomes character. That eventually when you endure enough, it becomes part of who you are. Character is this idea of its provenness. It's, it's now part of you, really. And so, once again, I apologize for all the sports analogies. Like, I married someone who doesn't love sports the way I do, and so just deal with me the same way Courtney does. Um, but it's, this, it's, it's like this mindset that a championship-type team would have, right? When football, they talk about the fourth quarter. I'm going to give you a World Cup example. Croatia is in the final four. Everyone's like, yeah, fired up. Well, they were down 1-0. They get it back. They, they come back, and they go into extra kicks, penalty kicks, and they win in penalty kicks. They beat Brazil. They should not have beaten Brazil. Um, but then they, the commentators tell me this, and I'm like, I had no idea that they, <laughs> this is the most soccer thing, all their games ended in ties. And so, like, so when they were down, they were not worried because they're used to ending in tie. And even last year, the way they advanced was through penalty kicks. And so most of the same players, when they were down, they were not shaken and they were not rattled. They're like, well, this is what we do. This is what we have in us. There is a character they have, a provenness that other teams are like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And like, well, they have this. Now, sports is great, but what about like real life? <laughs> I mean, you know, parenting and navigating this increasingly expensive world and just all the harshness and the difficulty, like... It's great when it's soccer over there, but I think sometimes it's helpful for us to know, and many of you guys have been there. I, I can't speak to your experience. You have been through, pardon my French, but hell and back again through different things in your life. I know you have because you live a life. And if you look back, sometimes you guys can look through and say, I, can, I dealt with that. I went through that. Sometimes we even see how God used it for good. Sometimes we don't have that story yet. We don't know how he used it. But you can deal with hard things, and you have a character that has proven this. And now you know that, like, I can, I can go through even worse. I don't want to. <laughs> but I won't be shaken. Uh, as a staff, we are, have this book club right now, and it's by uh, John Mark Comer, and the book is called A Non-Anxious Presence. And you can tell from the title kind of what his whole point is. 
but he's writing to Christians who are out there in the world of any leadership capacity saying, the gift that you can bring to people in this world is when everything is going and falling apart. And that's the way our global world looks like. If you look at almost any sector, it's like, yeah, things are way chaotic right now. He's like, to not be anxious is the gift that you bring to people, regardless of their faith, but also because of our faith. Hey, I don't have to fear the future. My hope is in God. And so I can be this non-anxious presence who can listen, who can be empathetic, who can bring Jesus, and so therefore I bring hope into that moment. What a gift. I know in my own life, there have been these different people, Wayne and Tony Barron are different mentors in my own life. Another guy, Larry, you guys don't know, he lives in Oceanside. Like, they are such benefits to me because I can come when I feel like I am woozy because I'm being shaken by different things and difficulties. What a gift to have someone who's like, they have the character, they have the endurance. And so... I, what I receive from them is some of the good brought from that awful time that they've been through. And so our growth through suffering, sometimes it benefits others, but sometimes it just, it's used to grow us. And the main thing that I think you want to get from this is hope. How unexpected, right? Going through hard things, you'll endure it. I expect that. You'll have a new character. I expect that. You're going to find hope. Like, oh. I like that. I want the hope. But because we have this new identity and future, suffering is going to bring a clarity to your life. And it's going to bring hope. True hope. It, for some reason, it is built and it is birthed and it grows in suffering. I'm going to turn with, you, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. It's to the right in your Bible. Right after Romans comes 1 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at uh, chapter 4. This is the same author, Paul, who wrote Romans. He writes 2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to pick it up in verse 16. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about this, this difficulty when you're going through it. And look at what he says. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. I feel that some days, deeply, right here. <laughs> But our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. Pause. How dare you? Right? It's like, Paul, this can feel belittling, right? Like, are you kidding me? You don't know how long I've been praying and enduring about this. How? It's not light. Momentary, it's terminal. The diagnosis is terminal. This is, these things don't change in my life. And he says, light and momentary affliction. Let's keep reading. We'll come back to that. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Right? Even that affliction, it's doing something in us. The weight of the glory beyond all comparison. And he's going to tell us something. It's instructive. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want to help Paul explain himself. Turn to the right again to 2 Corinthians 11. It's just the same book, a few chapters later. We're going to see what Paul called his light and momentary affliction. Because this is so bad, it's like a series of unfortunate events. 
the way he's describing his life. And this is what he called for himself a light and momentary affliction. Chapter 11, verses 23. This is really funny. He's, he's angry. He's fired up at these people. Um, right? Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Right? He's like, okay, come on, Paul. I am talking like a madman. There it is. There's your verse. With far greater laborers, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. The idea was that if you were beaten with the, the instruments they would use, the same ones they used to crucify Jesus, 40 times would kill you. So they're like, how about minus one? 39 times. Five times he got that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Rock stoned at me until I was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers. This sounds like green eggs and ham, right? It's like, Paul, man, you got to get out of there. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, and hunger and thirst, without food and cold and exposure, you get the idea. That's the same guy who said light and momentary afflictions. That is not used to belittle what you're going through. But what he is saying essentially is if you have a Google map of your life, zoom out. That while what I'm facing and going through in the pain and the suffering and the hardship, it is so immense, I can't even carry it. And he's saying, zoom out a little bit. And eventually you start to see, wait, there is this glory of God and this eternal inheritance. Oh my gosh, if I keep zooming out, that'll, I only look bigger because it comes more on the screen. And the, the, the suffering I'm going through, it gets a little bit more right-sized compared to the things that are unseen. And so that's why so many of the scriptures are telling us and instructing us, don't look at the things that are seen. It is the worst. Look at the things that are unseen. That's where hope is going to come from. That's where you're going to see the source of a divine love towards you. Sometimes if you look at my life, I'm not going to see it. But compared to the weight of the glory of God, right, it, it actually feels light. So he's not saying that to belittle you. He's actually saying his glory is that much more. You think you can't handle this? You won't be able to handle the glory of God. It's so good. And this hope he talks about, suffering can bring tremendous clarity for us. Because if you're like me, what I tend to do is when I'm going through sufferings, I tend to create a bunch of little false hopes to get me out of my suffering. If I'm unemployed, my hope becomes the next job interview. And it kind of goes well, but oh, they already had another candidate in mind and this is all pomp and circumstance, so they hire that person. Relationships are sideways. Oh, maybe this new you know, time when I go visit parents, things are going to be bliss and there'll be the Dabu Doris and we'll have the Whoville experience of Christmas. And we keep creating these hopes and they are seen as empty because they are the things that are seen. They are these things that I can't control and I, I want to do this. And suffering clarifies these insufficient hopes that we create. See, when the Bible talks about hope, it's not just saying find hope in the thing you can hope for. 
This, one trans, this new translation of the Bible, it talks about Romans 5.5 5 here, and it says, this hope will not disappoint. It's the Christian standard Bible. It's a newer version. Because other hopes are going to disappoint. If I place my hope and my ability to pull off and to fix and save my family, whatever version that means, I'm going to be disappointed. I am just, I'm good enough. I can't do it. But this hope that Jesus has for me, that what he has done for me and my future with him, that will not disappoint. That will not put me to shame. And so I think these verses, there's an opportunity here for us that we need to look in the mirror. Because I know sometimes we can go through sufferings and we have radically different experiences of suffering. And that experience can sometimes, it can reveal what am I actually hoping in? Because there's times we'll go through sufferings that we're just mad at God, angry at God, and the Bible talks about that. It's like, yeah, that's, we, we can go through that. We're just increasingly frustrated and angry because things aren't working out. And there's a good chance a gift that God is showing you is you're putting your hope in something else. And the best thing that we could say is there's a real hope that won't disappoint, that will not put you to shame. And if this hope is false, the best gift I can be given is finding a hope that will not <laughs> be shaken. But for some of you, you, you're going through sufferings and you're, you actually have an experience of the nearness of God and rejoicing in sufferings is something you, you can do right now. Or maybe you've been there before. And I'd say, we need you. <laughs> we need you. That, that is the gift that you can bring to the Christian community because we need, God gave us not just us and him, he gave us this family, and we need to walk with people. We need that, that character so someone can show us. I need Lucas to say, Rob, this is the hope. We need that. Because suffering and, 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 and pain, it can draw us to Jesus. One of the best things, Ryan already alluded to it, that we believe that God is not just up in heaven looking at us saying, man, that looks awful. We have a God who enters suffering. In fact, one of his names is a man of suffering. You're not going to see that on Christmas decorations very much. Well acquainted with sorrow. And so we have a God who enters suffering, who redeems suffering, who can use suffering but also he can give you an experience of love and joy in suffering. Even Jesus, it said the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You and I, there can be a joy set before you that you can endure the thing you're thinking of right now. It's possible. Sometimes we need people to help us get there, but it is available to us in Jesus. That gift is there for you. And what I love is the very last verse here. They tell us, why is this suffering not going to disappoint, right? Why is this one not going to put us to shame? It's because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus changes our experience of love. The reason given why we can know that the hope of Jesus is not going to disappoint is an experience you can see right here in this verse. It's not just 
being told that God loves you. It's an actual experience of the love of God to you. John Piper, he's one of my favorite pastors. He has this quote, and he says, love proven to our mind is different than love that is poured into our hearts. Because you and I, we can do this, and this is good Bible study, but we can take true things from the scripture and prove it to our mind that God loves us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world, I live in the world, therefore God loves me. And for some of you rational, analytic people, you're good and that's enough. That's kind of like, hey, your parents tell you you love them, like, well, I want to experience the love. And here he's saying, the way you know that is there is a love poured into your heart. There could be an experience of God's love towards you that shows you that that hope is genuine. It goes through fire. It is good. It's interesting when thinking about God's love. There's so many different ways to go with this. John, um, the author John, who wrote the book of John, because the Bible is named after their authors usually, but in 1 John 3, 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Some translation says that the love of the Father has lavished on us. He's just giving you gifts that you, like, that's, that's too much. That's, that's, that's too much. Like, that's too much love. He's saying, I've experienced the love of the Father he's given us that we should be called the children of God. And then an exclamation mark is not enough for him. So he goes, and that's just what we are. His experience of love of God is so much. It's like being just like under this waterfall of just water after water of love after love after love after love. And a lot of times when we think of love, we have this conditional love because that's almost everything we experience in this world. I love Lucas Weston, but there's conditions in our love, right? Right? If he starts treating me awfully, I'm going to like find ways to avoid him, <laughs> We just have these natural conditions. I love Courtney, but if we were awful towards each other, we probably wouldn't date very long because we wouldn't date at all. Because, right? We're naturally conditional. But you have a God who is fully self-sufficient, who didn't need anything. He chooses to love you, not based on you acting right. Because a little lie that we believe is that God loves me a little more when I do the things that he wants me to do. And that means he also loves me a little less if I don't do those things. But the amazing love of God is that when you are doing the worst of things in your worst moments, I know there's times like I felt like I am running as far from God as I possibly can, and I come back and I, you expect his response to be, oh, what have you been up to? How dare you, right? But his experience is, oh, I love you. That's a love that changes people. Sometimes those voices where we think that God's love is not for us and we have to earn it in some way or we have to prove it in some way, that's not from God. There is an experience of the love of God that is for you. In the hardest times, it seems to be refined by the hardest times that your experience becomes that much louder of the love of God. 
Um, this last year for the Pattersons has been a tough year for us. Um, people in our community group know all that we're walking through. But we have uh, Courtney's dad is, uh, at this point, late stages of Alzheimer's disease. And that is just the worst to see a person being erased before you. You're just like, oh, there's a suffering, and it gets worse and worse. Difficulties parenting. Um, we love our, our kids like crazy, but they're going through things that are diagnoses and terminal things that like, these things don't change. And so what does this mean? How do we love well? And when you see them going through the difficult times, you just feel it in your bones. The love of God. See, I can tell myself God loves me, but sometimes you need to have that experience of God loving me. And I'm telling you this story not to, not to highlight this, but to show that God does do things like this. I was hanging out with one of my friends, Barrett Goldberg. Uh, him and Sally, they're part of the church. Um, and we were just going to get lunch at Snapper Jack's. I love lunch with Barrett at Snapper Jack's. Highly recommend it. Um, and uh, the night before we had lunch, he woke up early because he felt like the Lord had a word for me and also for Courtney. And he's writing down in his journal and this and that. And basically, get this, here's something God does every now and then just to show his love for us. God told Barrett, and Barrett wrote it down, he delivered me, God says he sees you and he just wants you to know you are loved. I'm like, oh, oh man, I need that. I took a screenshot of his journal. I don't know if I was supposed to do that or not, but I did. <laughs> That's an experience of love that's not just proven to our minds. God's love is here for you. And sometimes the difficulties of suffering, it only makes that love that much, we see it that much clearer. Because we have all these false things we've got to get swatted away to see that that's what it is. And kind of just bringing it home for all of us, I, I don't know if you guys realize this, but this is a Christmas passage. Can you guys catch that? But if you do Advent and you have like the Advent candles, all the words for Christmas are here in this passage. It is this wrapped in suffering that you have peace and hope and joy and, you know, like all these amazing gifts that we see in Advent. It's right here. Because here's what we do. There's something about Christmas that we amplify our expectations. And we, if you're like me, um, I'll put Courtney on blast too, if you like Courtney, um, we start to have this vision of what Christmas could be, where I have this beautifully decorated tree, and we'll have all the right gifts, and we'll have all the right people, and we'll have the cute matching outfits, but please don't make me match, right? Um, there's all that stuff, and we have the right traditions and just the right meals, and if everything's just right, I can experience peace, and they open the gifts, and there's joy, and there's all this, and it never works. It never works. Because there's something about Christmas that also amplifies that we see the loss and the lack and the suffering in our life. I was talking to someone from first service. This is their first Christmas without a loved one. You feel it. There's the relationships and this, the you know, brothers and sisters and parents, and you feel the distance that much louder in Christmas. When the meal goes wrong, it feels that much more tragic in Christmas, the gifts are always going to disappoint. Courtney got me a drone one year. I crashed it in 10 minutes, unrecoverable. It could not be fixed, right? If, they, if that ain't a picture, there you go. Things are transient. <laughs> Don't let me drive your drone. 
I know this year, for, for whatever reason, this year feels especially weighty. I don't know if you guys feel that this year. I think some of us hoped that when COVID would be over, if we can say that, that things would just be better and great. And it's like, oh yeah, that was another hope that disappointed. And so now I'm just left to everything else. <laughs> and things haven't been fixed. And there's a weightiness. And there's a desire that maybe if we get the right things and we do, like, we, we can pull out, we can make joy happen. I can make peace happen. It's not going to happen around our tree. But the hope, the peace, the joy, it comes from the tree that Jesus was hung on. That's where it comes from. And so for us, like, there is, those things are available to us, but it's not from the false hopes that we create for ourselves. It's not going to come by shopping at the Oaks Mall in just the right way where they have, you know, Mariah Carey for the 18th time. It will disappoint, or anger in that case. <laughs> but there is a love that God will pour into your life. It seems audacious to say it, but I will say it. God will pour his love into your heart that will show you true hope in Jesus. I don't know if that hope gets realized this side of our life or if it comes after we die. But we have the hope now. We have, it's going to come. It, it, it's coming. It's almost here. And we can have that anticipation that one day this hope will be realized. It will not disappoint. The peace I have with God, it is secure. It was not based on you. You don't have to worry about losing it. It's there. And so we could choose to rejoice. And so there is a calling. I'm going to have the band come on up. The band is like, awesome today. I love it. Thank you guys so much. Um, but as we start to think about what are we going to take from this, I've said a lot of things. I don't know what God was speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is at work, so you might have heard something that is God's word to you that I didn't even intend to say. What is it that you need to respond with? For some of you, maybe it's that call to be a non-anxious presence to people around you, and we need you. But for some of you, you're going through and the suffering feels so in your face. The light momentary affliction, no, it's, it's the very real and present affliction. Grab someone to pray with you. If you're in a community group, grab someone in your community group. If not, we have the prayer team back there. We want to pray. We need to hold hands and sometimes have someone bring us into the presence of God saying, I got to find that peace. Respond. Hit prayer. We take communion Celebrating Good Friday, right? That Jesus' shed blood, the juice, the, his broken body, the cracker. We remember that he died in our place. And because of that, we have life. And we celebrate his death because he didn't stay dead. And his resurrection will be ours as well. We're going to sing songs. The first song is It Is Well With My Soul. The hardest song in the world to sing. <laughs> He's like, no, I want to change everything. Not well. And he's saying, you know what? I can trust God. And that faith I have, I can have peace. I can have hope. I can have joy. And I can choose to rejoice. It's kind of funny. The, the command to rejoice in Scripture, it's always commanded. Sometimes David even commands his own heart. Rejoice, heart. I'm telling you right now. Rejoice. And so I want you guys to sing, not because you're feeling like great and life is happy and daisies and roses. No, sing because you 
have a God worthy of joy. And you have something for you that can't be taken and shaken. We also give because God has generously given to us, and so we have the buckets, we have the stuff online. But I want you to respond to God. Whatever he is saying, I want you to do it. Feel the freedom to respond as you need, even if it's grabbing someone next to you and saying, I need you to pray for me. Let's rejoice and let's sing loud and proud because he's a good God. Pray with me. Jesus, wow, are we so blessed and lucky, Lord, that you would love us. Lord, you have chosen us, and so because of that, we can have true hope and true joy right in the face of sufferings. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made us one with God. And God, that you would be our dad. Thank you. So God, right now in this room, I pray against any of the voices that would say that we aren't deserving or any of the voices that say it's too much for God to handle. God, I pray that we can have moments of vulnerability and just realness, Lord, and we can shout our praises because that is even louder than the suffering that we have right now. So Lord, we respond to you. Amen.